Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost Politics Podcast. I'm Ned Simons. Uh, Paul War is here. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ned. And Rachel Wearmouth is here. Hey, Hi, Rachel. Ned. And regular guest star, Brexit expert, Anand Menon from the UK and the Changing Europe think tank. Hi, Anand. Hi, Anand. So, uh, Brexit then. Um, Labour is now going to put forward an amendment uh, calling for a second referendum when the next meaningful vote happens, which is by March the 12th. Uh, here's John McDonnell on ITV's Peston programme last night. People are worried about their constituencies, they're worried about jobs, they're worried about the economy. And I think the more we focus on that, the more there's a chance that either a deal will go through which will protect jobs and the economy, or to get some deal through, it'll be conditional on going back to the people. So, um, to begin with Paul, um, the kind of announcement that Labour was going to so firmly go behind a referendum kind of caught quite a lot of people by surprise. What, what triggered that move at, the, at this point? Well, what was interesting was it, the key decision-making meeting was on Monday, um, and there was a very, very long meeting of what is loosely called a sort of Brexit subcommittee for Labour, except this wasn't the Brexit subcommittee. It was an even looser conglomeration than that, or rather you might say tighter, because Tom Watson wasn't there. Um, Now, you might... That's another story about Tom Watson, whether or not he's got out of things. (laughs) But um, the the rest of the the inner circle of Corbyn, these are people in the shadow camera like Keir Starmer and John McDonnell and, crucially, key aides to Jeremy Corbyn and the leader's office all hammered out this form of words which it tried to sort of square the circle of where they are and it tried to basically go through the sequencing of the party conference composite which is very detailed but basically in a nutshell they decided look well we've ticked off uh, trying to get a, a soft brexit through parliament we've ticked off the attempt to get a general election so now the next move is a people's vote and pinning down what that meant and that means uh, they say a sort of a credible leave deal mm. or remain. And what was interesting is that after that very long meeting, uh, and words really matter in these things, um, you then get a sort of almost like a gospel-like text. So this holy text has now pr- been produced, <laughs> and it's as holy as the composite from conference. And that text was in, in the form of a briefing, a Q&A to the Labour Party, the Parliamentary Labour Party, and went out that evening. So because things are written down in the Labour Party, it really matters. Mm. So there's no going back on it. And that's why, although you've seen since then, people tried to get around it, it's written down and it's written down that they're going for a people's vote in the next stage of parliamentary process. Rachel, how much do you think that decision was kind of triggered by a fear of more defections to the the tiggers, or so, so to speak. I, I think that in, uh, definitely played a role. I think they're, they're, they're worried about defections to, to TIG. They're worried about losing votes to TIG, because I think depending on which poll that you look at, they're polling as high as 18%. I think there was mm. one YouGov poll, but a poll of polls shows them at about 8%. Um, and one of the things that TIG is united on, although it doesn't Maybe the only thing they're united Possibly on. the only thing is that they're, they're all very pro-second referendum. I think they're also worried about a lot of shadow ministers going. Right. Um, well, resigning over the the fact that they couldn't mm. get to a people's vote, and I think that's probably the un- yeah. underestimated element in it. So, when they do finally put this amendment down, and and you know, 
is actually going to pass? I mean, what chance is there of a second referendum motion actually winning when it comes to this vote? I mean, timing's crucial, isn't mm. it? Uh, I just feel like I'm reciting your newsletter this morning. <laughs> 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 Nothing wrong with that, Anand Menon. <laughs> but everyone on the people's vote side have known from the start that their chance was highest the later they could leave this. I mean, in an ideal world, it would be referendum versus no deal. And those are the circumstances in which they were confident they could win. The danger here is they're going to have to amend it and it will get voted on before the vote on the government's deal. Mm. Uh, that, I think, reduces its chances of going through. It doesn't mean it can't come back. It doesn't mean it doesn't reappear in some way, shape or form. If the deal gets defeated and then we have a delay, we'll do this all again in, mm. in some manner. But I, d I find it hard to see it passing before the vote on the deal. And in terms of numbers there, I think it's really yeah. interesting. I mean, I talked to, uh, I went for my sins every Monday night at the Parliamentary Labour Party meeting, and it was a big one this week uh, on Monday because Jeremy Corbyn turned up and he rather cleverly did this big announcement in just before the parliamentary be meeting about the shift in Brexit position. So rather cynically, you, you might, some might argue it meant that anti-Semitism wasn't the focus of that mm. meeting, but Brexit was. But it still didn't mean it was any less heated because it was all about Brexit. So you had some Labour leavers there, like John Mann, saying, look, you will never be Prime Minister if you go ahead. Now you've done this. Now you've done this. Uh, you'll never be Prime Minister because in areas like mine, in the Midlands and in the North, the Labour voters won't forgive you. Equally, you had people coming out like Peter Kyle, who was delighted and said there's no going back for Jeremy now. Um, again, that brings us back to that written text they think it now it's written down that's it um but the other person that was interesting was lucy powell after that meeting she said well actually she's not totally convinced about a people's vote she thinks it could be damaging but she and she said she put a number on it she said about 25 labor mps might rebel against right. this now if that if it's that big then it's in trouble already yeah, the people's vote yeah. never mind trying to win over tory ministers who would only do it once may's deal has been yeah, defeated. Yeah, not. There's less than 25 Tory second referendum. Precisely. To... And also, you know, th those that are not ministers anyway. Mm. Um, but th what counters that, I talked to someone this morning in the Labour Party who said, actually, no, this figure of 25 or 30, Caroline Flint's even bigger figure, it's all overdone. We reckon that at most there are nine because last night showed how disciplined the Labour Party was. And we had some votes in the House of Commons. Rare thing, you might say. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <laughs> and they had some votes. But actually, what was rare was that Labour's whipping really really was quite powerful and you saw it really tight and there was virtually no dissent from, yeah. their, from their noises off. So um, there are some people in the Labour Party who think that, that the ma maximum that could finally vote against people's vote would be about 9 or 10. I don't know I think that's an underestimate. Well, well actually let's listen to one of them who might. Lisa Nandy last night was pointing out her problems with a, a second referendum. Here's her speaking on television. Came out on Monday mm. about having a, a couple of options cooked up in Westminster on the ballot paper when large numbers of my constituents are now saying they want to vote for no deal at all. And there's a real problem here because not listening to people, not responding to very real concerns is frankly what got us here in the first place. Right. We're about to go back and repeat all those mistakes again. And worse than that, actually, we're not being clear with people still. Um, you've got members of the Shadow Cabinet, for example, with deep reservations about this, as surprised as anyone to mm. hear this announcement on Monday. That was Lisa Nandy. Um if one of you can clear something up for me, actually. So is Labour's position now that they have a referendum on a deal? Are they in a situation where, say they win an election, they put a Brexit deal through and get it agreed? Is their position that they would then hold a referendum on their own deal? 
Well, it's a good question, Ed, because we asked this to Jeremy Corbyn's spokesman after PMQs in, in the huddle, as it's called. And we said, you know, are you really seriously suggesting, and if it is the case, that Labour wants a referendum on Labour's deal or Remain, how would Jeremy campaign? Would he campaign for Remain or would he campaign for, quotes, his deal? And they said, um, that's not a question we're engaged with yet. <laughs> and you think, yeah, you're right there. You're not engaged yeah, with it. That. But um, Keir Starmer said he would vote Remain. So the shadow Brexit secretary is saying that he could negotiate a deal with Brussels and then in a referendum campaign against it. It's true. I mean, th- that's what's odd about the position. But, you know, the whole thing about what Lisa Nandy was getting at is that there is a constituency out there, a strong one for the simple solution, as we've talked before, about clean Brexit or no deal. You know, it's remarkable remarkably popular and uh, you know it's not an SW1 it's not remarkably popular in the commons but it's remarkably popular out there in the country and HuffPost I'll just put a little advert in here uh, is doing a M62 tour where we're actually talking to real people in the north you know in Lancashire and in Yorkshire and asking them what they think and you know a clean Brexit as it's called or a no deal is more popular than you think which makes me think is the clever way out of this for the people's voters to actually embrace that and say I know this sounds mad, but we could have a four-option referendum. You could have, oh, you could have no deal, you could have May's deal, you could have uh, Labour's deal, and you could have Remain. In other words, you'd have a spectrum. Now, I don't know how practical that is, but it may be that's I mean, the only way of getting all the MPs to back it. There, I mean, that was kind of Justin Greening, who was been pushing a second referendum. Her idea was a three-question yeah. referendum, so maybe there's a similar thing there. I think we should probably now talk about Theresa May's kind of latest ploy to stave off a rebellion this week, where she's announced that the next meaningful vote will be by May the 12th. If that's voted down, then there'll be a vote on a no deal. If that's voted down, then MPs get to vote for an extension, despite having said, what, approximately 4,000 times <laughs> that we're leaving on the 29th and extension is not going to happen and I don't even want one. Um, Anand, do you think um, this new sort of approach increases the likelihood that her deal will pass or decreases the chance? The first thing I'll say is just how wonderful it is that both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn have hit upon party management strategies <laughs> this week. <laughs> I mean, it's taken them a while, but it does seem to me that actually they've both figured out that they need to give a little bit to keep their parties on side. And they've been quite successful, both of them, haven't they? I mean, yeah. listening to what Paul was saying about his, the Labour whipping operation. And I think there is no doubt at all that Theresa May thinks that she can not only hold her troops together using this tactic, but it will help her get it over the line. Because so many... I mean, I think the calculation is quite clear, isn't it? So many people in the ERG equate delay with cancellation. Uh, But if we delay this, it's the thin end of the Remainer wedge, we'll end up with a referendum, we'll end up staying in. Uh, And you can hear the sound of many of them putting themselves into reverse very, very quickly. Mm. Well, so Jacob Rees-Mogg the other night at uh, the Palladium was perhaps the clearest, saying, actually, I can live with a codicil. Yeah. Uh, and so, it'll, you know, no one knows what's going to happen in this vote, but it seems quite clear to me that the ERG is going to be whittled down in size when it comes to it in terms of the numbers who are willing yeah, to Yeah, I mean, Rachel, against. what do you think? Because you kind of doorstep these ERG meetings every week. Is it's it now a split? Are they more pronounced as split in the ERG? Have you got the, the soft ERG, Jacob Rees-Mogg? Well, they, then... were, they were very subdued and very quiet as they left their weekly meeting uh, mm. this week. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg did speak to reporters for um, a, a few moments, and he, he was very... There was a, the beginning of a, a softening of his position, I would say. He's, he's moving more towards, yeah, we'll, we'll take assurances rather than we want this big legally binding change. And I guess for, for, for people on that wing of the party, it might serve them to get the deal through and then perhaps get a new leader in place for the future right. relationship where they think a lot of the action will be. So do you think that's about not wanting to be kind of 
blamed for no deal or, I mean, what's the kind of dynamics there is about future leadership? Um, I think some of it will mm. be about, well, they're not an entirely united group. I think I think that some people often think that they are and, and they're not. There is a, there is a, a spectrum of opinion. Um, so, yeah, I think they'll probably be thinking about leadership candidates for sure. Or for the I think what weeks. is interesting, though, is that um, the ERG, they know it's not just the people's vote they're really, really worried about and, and not just Jeremy Corbyn government they're really worried about, both of which have been, you know, these these yeah. spectres that have been raised by number 10 mm. to scare them into doing it. They don't, they're not easily scared, the ERG. But one thing that does worry them, I think, is this idea of a common market 2.0. Because actually... A catchy name. It, I know, <laughs> but it, it does... It's curious because actually... It is Brexit, it delivers a lot of the things, but for them, that really is even worse in many ways than a people's vote, because it's Brexit in name only. And, and they've got a point, you might argue. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I might correct me here, but, you know, would it really be Brexit if we're still tied into all those rules? We're, we're, we're bound by the rules, but we literally have no say over them. And But the reason this really matters, I think, is because that's where we might end up. Because... I get the feeling there isn't enough time to get this um, uh, codicil sorted in time for the next meaningful vote. I think she's, it's too soon. Um, and if the ERG aren't happy with that, then it goes down, then we have a delay. And I think after the delay, after March 14, then it gets really interesting. That's where this whole thing about last man standing kicks in, where, where um, Anand was quite rightly saying, you know, it's about sequencing. And the people's voters and the, and the common marketeers are desperate to be the last option. Mm -hmm. And I do think that actually the, that's why the common market people might have the advantage. Because even if they come before the people's vote thing, that's in, that could win it for them. Because they could say, look, if you don't do this, you know what's coming next, guys. It's a referendum. So you've rejected her deal. Come on, this is it. And I think what could be interesting is the way Labour and Keir Starmer and Corbyn might, just might, having said they're not going to enable a Tory Brexit, might try and take ownership of that and say, this isn't the Tory Brexit anymore, this is a national Brexit. That's going to be interesting. It's not, I'm yeah. not saying it's going to happen, but I think that's, that is possibly more likely than the people's vote. Right but there now. are some conversations needed about freedom of movement. Yeah, you're absolutely I mean, right. They've been skirting around this, yeah. and Keir Starmer came up with something that sounded a bit Swiss, and it's far from clear to me the EU would give us that anyway. Yeah. Uh, there needs to be a lot more honesty about that, and no one's going near that. I mean, the one to. thing that, that depressed I mean, not the one thing, there's a lot of things that depress me all the time. But, uh, <laughs> You're a Leeds is, fan. Well, exactly, and I'm getting more depressed by the day. But uh, something that really depresses me about all this is, is the degree to which this deal, even if it passes, becomes the kind of bastard, unwanted stepchild of Parliament. Mm -hmm. Because everyone coming out of this, even if it passes, will be able to turn around and say, I didn't like it, I was forced, I was bullied, I was threatened, I was conjoled. So on day one, it's hated by everyone. Mm -hmm. And it just means that we start again. You know, yeah. everything is reopened on Brexit Day plus one, and it's like, right, we've been forced into this, but now we're going to get our... Speaking yeah. of what the EU will give us, talking about an extension which people are quite excited about, um, you know, what length of extension are we talking about here? Some people say it's two months to the middle of the summer. There was reports that you know, the EU would rather have a 21-month extension. Mm. What do we think is the most likely extension period that we're going to get here? Here's where I think that Cooper & Co. handed a slight victory to the Prime Minister because what the Prime Minister was clear about saying was this is going to be a short, limited extension. And she's clearly thinking pre-European Parliament elections or just after. Now, we, there, are, there are many things we don't know. One, I read that Guardian piece on the 21-month delay mm. and wasn't wholly convinced by it because it's not what I've heard from people. Yeah, in number 10, we're desperate. really heavily yeah, yeah. going us away from it. Uh, the second thing that we're absolutely not clear about is 
what happens with European elections, because we did an event with a guy called Stefan de Rink, who's on the Article 50 Task Force uh, last week. And he was absolutely adamant. He said, if you are a member state on the day of the European elections, you have elections. Mm. That's what the treaty says. End of story. There's none of this messing about saying we'll keep our MEPs or anything. If you're in, you're constitutionally bound to have those elections. That's problematic at, you know, <laughs> at, at a minimum, I would say. Uh, and I think the Prime Minister wants, in terms of a, ref of a delay, to get something that takes us up to the elections no further, wants to hold that out as a hard deadline, would probably appreciate the EU saying the same mm. so that people don't think we can keep doing it. And we'll probably go through this whole process again <laughs> with something that looks very, very similar to this deal yeah. after the 29th. I mean, yeah. this is not ending anytime soon. What, what do you make, Alan, though, on the whole point of the European Parliament? I, was, uh, I read something, I think it was yesterday, where someone said, actually, well, look at the case of states that join the European Union halfway through European Parliament. We find a way round them having representation. They don't have, they haven't taken part in that European Parliament election, but somehow we've allowed representation. I don't know if that main, means sort of proxy MEPs or what, but, but, but that's one argument that actually we could use some sort of hybrid. But the constitutional stipulation is member states will hold elections to the European Parliament. If you're not a member state when the election happens, then actually that stipulation doesn't apply. You can find a fix yeah. once you're in. I mean, there might be ways around it, and you hear that there are people in Brussels thinking about ways of getting around it. But there is a real nervousness, I think, about vulnerability to legal challenge. And here's a scenario that I love. Imagine we're in on the date of the election. We don't have those elections. If I was Nigel Farage, I would go to court. Yeah. One I'm, of a, the, you know, yeah. I'm a European citizen. I've been denied my right to vote. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the areas which I cover is uh, local government. And there are a number of task forces set up to prepare councils for, for Brexit and a lot of the council chief executives are really, really annoyed that Whitehall won't give them information as to whether or not they have to prepare elections. for European elections, whether they have to get town halls yeah, ready because yeah. um, they've got obviously their own local government elections, yeah. but it would be and considering they've had so much austerity, they, they, they want to know what they need to do. to know who will have yeah. the national election. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a Brexit aside, one of the big stories this week, which was um, anti-Semitism and Labour, which is still here as a story. Um, Derby North MP Chris Williamson was suspended after he said the party apologised too much for it. Suspended eventually, after initially he wasn't suspended. Um, here's a clip um, which the Yorkshire Post unearthed of him speaking at a Momentum event. Uh, Rachel, how much anger is there on the Labour benches at not just what Williamson said, but also kind of how leadership reacted to it over the course of yesterday do you think um it's pretty hard to overstate <laughs> how much <laughs> anger there is really um th there's kind of a, a few different narratives as to, to how corbyn reacted to um mm. th this video emerging of chris williamson um one is that he he did all he could in the words of uh, one labor mp siobhan mcdonough who, who spoke to us that corbyn did all he could to try and protect Chris Williamson and to stop him from being suspended um, and there is another which which kind of said that Co Corbyn had no role whatsoever and that he ha wouldn't have final say over what happened to Chris Williamson in any case. In, in the first instance um, we were told that Chris Williamson was going to be given notice of an investigation into his pattern of behaviour uh, and whether it involved anti-Semitism. That was a few hours later updated to and now he's being suspended and I think that was after just a howl of rage from the, the PLP and from a lot of the grassroots. I think it was 
pretty obvious yeah. that it was a reaction to that, or they would have presumably uh, moved to suspend him straight away. It was quite interesting, kind of Tom Watson's reaction very quickly, calling for him to be suspended, retweeting MPs calling for suspended. Yeah. Um, you know, he's kind of uh, started being a lot more vocal, hasn't he, Paul? Watson. Watson. Yeah. Like, what? What's well, what's he up to? That's my question. Uh, to be fair to Nick Watt, Nick Watt last night actually came up with this phrase that actually um, that Watson knows that there could be 70 MPs, Labour MPs, who could walk if the, if Labour doesn't get this right. Right. And that's like seen as Watson being on manoeuvres and having this mini army behind him. Now, I'm not sure they're going to walk, but um, they are a force. There's no question about that. And it all comes down, to be honest, to something quite simple, but something that really deeply divides the Corbyn worldview from the pre-Corbyn worldview of how Labour is run and what Labour's about. And pre-Corbyn basically under Ed Miliband and every other Labour leader, basically being a member of a political party to them is not a right. It's a privilege. And you earn privileges by signing up to the values of the party. Corbyn's worldview has always been, this is so important being a member of a political party. It's almost like a religion. Mm. And so it's like having employment rights. So if someone wants to take those rights away from you, you go down the legal route. You go down this... Uh, it's, it's already called a quasi-judicial route, the, the, the disciplinary process within the Labour Party, if, if you want to be stripped of your membership. But don't forget, it's the quasi bit. That's the, In other words, it's political. It's not totally legal. And so what's happened since 2016 is that the way this... And certainly since Jenny Formby's been there, is you've got more lawyers, you get... And, and, and actually... The part of the real problem with anti-Semitism, uh, the old guard say, is that there were too many lawyers holding up the process. That was what was causing the delays. People like Ken lawyering up when they shouldn't really have had lawyers involved in this. It's about common sense. It's about ethics. It's about your values. And those values are set by the leader. Ultimately, it's a political party. It's not a corporation. And that's that big difference. Landsman is on the Corbyn side. He thinks that actually, yeah, Members have rights, you need due process, and it's it's got to be almost like a legal process. But there is a very different strand amongst some people who actually do sit on those disciplinary panels and say, ultimately, this is about do you uphold hold our values? And boy, if you if you even veer from them slightly, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And that's what it all comes down to. Not definitions of anti-Semitism, not necessarily even definitions of what you've said, or meta versions of whether Williamson was apologising for anti-Semitism or apologising for the way the party handled it. It comes down to actually that big difference. It's very interesting you say that. I was speaking to quite a few kind of who I'd call core Benista Labour members, grassroots members yesterday who were asking me about what was going on and a lot of them brought up the idea of you know if this was a if this was their job, I'd take them to employment tribunals and stuff. So that I think that worldview of a lot of the members is also part of it, which I think is quite uh, yeah. interesting. And if you've got a member led party you might well say that's mm. the way you're going. But actually it didn't used to be like that under Ed Miliband even if you want to get rid of someone, the leader can get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. Or technically, it's a quasi-judicial process, but he can strip them of the whip, and then he can say to the general secretary, "Look, this is really serious." And once they take it seriously, the, what's the benchmark? The, the, the benchmarks—they uh, set their own benchmarks. They're not legal benchmarks. Have you hmm. dis brought the party into disrepute? It's quite a wide catch-all that Blair and um, Kinnock introduced. So you know, unless they're changing that completely, then I don't know. It's a problem that the Dems got into, if you remember them. They're so obsessed with their rules when they had problems with anti-Semitism. Nick Clegg found it really hard to kick people oh, out. Oh, sexism in and, particular. Oh, sexism as yeah. well, yeah. yeah. Um, not from the Tories have so much. They just, you know, do what they like in terms of that, which is yeah, an interesting. Yeah, comes back to a party. Um, one thing that brings, I think, Brexit and this anti-Semitism issue together, if we go back to the TIG, do we think that the TIG 
is going to start growing? Are more defections going to happen as a result of these two things? Or have we reached the limit now? Is that is it these MPs and that's that's it now? Well, there's an, in there's an interesting contest happening up in the northeast, which has just just raised this question. Mm. There's um, the, the Labour candidate up there is um, momentum-backed and he's, he's, he is quite, quite left-wing, a guy called Jamie Driscoll. Um, he was the surprise win over Nick Forbes, who mm. was kind of... Um, of a different ring, ring of the party, um, and there's a there's a new independent running um, who is a, a business guy, not politically affiliated, and there's a big kind of conversation as to whether whether he might join and whether that start to, might start to change the conversation in different parts of the party. So he'd be a TIG candidate, would he? Possibly. Oh, that'd be interesting mm. at local level because they haven't done that yet at local yeah. level. Apart a, from that is Brighton, very old yeah, Marsh, the, Brighton, yeah. Yeah. the Brighton ex-council leader and I think another councillor formed the first local TIG group, but I'm not sure how much more it's spread yet, but maybe it will. Um, yeah, the thing about TIG, though, is that, you know... They are in danger of looking like rebels without a cause anymore, yeah, aren't yeah. they? I mean, with both par big parties shifting on Brexit, then, you know, what are they left with? Um, and we did mention this to Gavin Shuka last week, and he kind of <laughs> accepted that, yeah, well, he, he kind of talked around and said, well, there'll always be bigger issues. And if you're one of those Labour MPs, of course, the Williamson incident this week is, boy, it confirmed you that mm. I don't ever want to be in that party. Mm. But beyond not wanting to be in that yeah. party... What, what positive vision is there? I don't know. Yeah, it's very hard to build a party on not being anti-Semitic. Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> yeah. hopefully that'd yeah. be the, just yeah. the general basis. We'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Should we do a quiz? Oh, go on. Um, it's a slightly different format this time. Uh, rather than going around individually, I'll make you all shout out first and see and get the answer. Oh, right. Um, Fingers on buzzers. buzzers time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you've got to make buzzer noises, if you like. Um, it was the Oscars this week. So this is a quiz about political films. Oh, good. Um, I'm going to give you kind of two star names from a film and you have to guess what political film they were the stars of. Oh my God. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Test my popular culture. We'll see how you do at this. Um, it might be that you don't get any and that's more fun for me. So, uh, what political <laughs> film... Toy Story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what political film were George Clooney and Ryan Gosling in? The was, camp, not the candidate. Ida yes. March. Yes, Rachel's got Ida it. Ida March. March. Brilliant. Okay, so you get the Sorry, idea. Sorry, I was supposed to say one, Rachel. One, oh, yeah. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no I, want, I want you to shout your names first. <laughs> yes, uh, okay, uh, John Travolta and Emma Thompson. Christ, I've got no idea what they were in. It's an American film. No idea whatsoever. Um, one of them played a president. No chance. It's uh, Primary Colours. Oh, my uh, God! Which was the book... Based on the book yeah. about I've Clinton. I've never seen it, you know. Uh, very good. You I should watch it. It's, uh, it's oh. great. Okay. Um, Robert De Niro and Dustin Hoffman. Ooh. Complete silence. Political movie yeah. that they would have been in. God, this is the listeners good, at home I have to say, uh, you're impressed. Uh, you're impressed me now because, I mean, I've got no idea. He's got Google. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I've watched all of these. Yeah, go on. Okay, I've it's got Wag on. the Dog. Yes, good which movie. Is, again, a great film. Really good movie. Okay, but... this one I'm expecting someone to get quickly, so no pressure. Uh, Tom Hollander and Peter Capaldi. Oh, the in the, the loop. Thick, yes, well done, Paul. In the loop, the thick of it, thick of it film. Um, okay, I'll give you two more. Um, Sean Penn and Josh Brolin. Milk. Yeah. yeah. Well sure. done. She's good. Well done. Chuck a West Wing question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one, one more. Uh, Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving. Maybe a bit harder to get. Ooh. As opposed to those other easy ones. Oh, right. Those other ones which are really piece of piss, to be honest. Oh, my oh, God. It's... Isn't he an Australian? He's an Australian. Yeah, yeah. This, um, I know this. 
Oh. Rachel looks like she definitely knows it. Go on, sorry, you ran out, you run out of time. Uh, v for Vendetta. Oh, Ooh. I don't know. I was thinking of it. That's, uh, that's, yeah. uh, that's this week's quiz. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll leave you with the best awkward moment of the week, which is Sajid Javid, who probably should listen to what the Prime Minister says. About uh, an amendment that's been tabled by Mr Costa for today. You asked me, did you ask me, did you yes. say what's wrong with that amendment? Yeah. Do Nothing. So is the government supporting it now? Yes. Good. I'm delighted to hear that. What do you mean now? When was the government not supporting it? When did you hear that? Yesterday. From who? From the Prime Minister. Did you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 